There's a scripture in Philippians 2.13 that speaks of the energizing power of God. And, uh, and that, that verse tells us that God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's, a, it's an awesome encouragement from God that everything he calls us to do, yes, indeed, he equips us to do it. And key for every advance in our lives is the call to follow Jesus. So we're in the fourth of a five-week series about learning Christ, and that is intentionally drawn from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, where the Bible puts a contrast in bold relief between the old life and the new life, and the life apart from Christ is described in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 as being alienated from the life of God and having a darkened heart. And it's one of many descriptions in the Bible that just simply shows that apart from Christ, human beings have many wonderful qualities because God created all, all human beings in his image. And the Bible tells us clearly that it is because of the good news of the gospel that we can be aware of God's greatness in blessing all human beings with benefits and capabilities that many of us don't even fully credit, uh, give credit for. However, the contrast of the old life and the new life, shout out old life, new life, old life, new life. So the contrast old life is apart from Christ is this Ephesians 4, 18 and 19, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts, the darkening of their hearts. And then the Bible describes a pattern of, 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 of sinful behavior that is, a, that is a characteristic of all cultures. And then in verse 20, it says, but you, that is, if you're in Christ, if you have come to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, Ephesians 4.20 addresses you and me directly. And it says, you have not learned Christ in this way. Now, I went back and double-checked this again because I found it so intriguing. The language there is very precise, and it is precisely not saying you learned about Christ, although that's true. The text, it's the only time in the Greek New Testament that this phrase is used, and the construction in the Greek puts an emphasis on the, the, the personal pronoun him referring to Christ, when it says that you have not so learned Christ, if so be you have heard him. Would you say, we have heard him? Would you say that with me? We have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, what's really striking about these two verses, 20 and 21, we're reading 21 there, but 20 and 21, is that they, they accent something very, that's at the very heart of discipleship. When we talk about following Jesus, we're talking about a call that is now demonstrated in the Gospels in such a way as to reveal that 
The call of our life is to know him. It is to grow in him. And what is real striking about Ephesians 4, 20 and 21 is that the language is accenting something that might be surprising to us. All of these believers that are receiving the letter to the Ephesians were taught the word of God by other fallible human beings. How many of you can shout an amen and say, fallibility is a characteristic of all of our lives, amen? And that doesn't change when we're born again, filled with the Holy Spirit. So what is really striking is the Bible is saying there's something about the gospel, there's something about the faithful proclamation of God's word and the um, digesting of God's word in the heart of a redeemed believer that it can be said that no matter what human instrument God used to bring this gospel truth to you, once the truth of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, his conquest over sin, hell, death, and the grave, his eternal priesthood at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and all the wonderful truths of the gospel, when that is in your heart, no matter what instrument God used to bring those truths to your heart, it can be said, you have heard him. You have been taught by him. Now, I've said before, and you've heard me say, that wonderful scene in the book of Acts where the apostles before Christ ascended bodily in Acts 1.11, the Bible says for 40 days, Jesus in his risen glory and the splendor of his glorified person spoke to them about the kingdom of God and told them to wait in the city of Jerusalem for the promise of the Father which you have heard not many days from now. And I've said before, wouldn't it have been cool to be in that seminar? Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that 40-day encounter with the Lord Jesus literally uh, talking in glorified person with each one of those apostles? And, and yet, it's not too much to say that Ephesians 4, 20, 21 is saying there's a different way, but very profound way, that you and I can say, I'm sitting, as one hymn writer said, at the feet of Jesus. This is the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is not just that we absorb facts or knowledge or uh, that we uh, even, we might in our generation, we might actually diminish the value of knowledge more and focus more on experience and compassion and good works. And there is a, there's a danger that we can slip into of thinking that, uh, that the gospel is just these little tributaries in our lives. But actually, the gospel is nothing less than coming to know him. You have been taught by him as the truth is in Christ. And any human being that God uses as an instrument in our lives plays a role and yet that role that role is diminished by the glory and the power of Christ himself bringing his word to us so in light of that it's really beautiful to see and I'd like to ask you to turn in your bible to the book of Luke in chapter 4 and 
As you turn to Luke 4, we can think a little bit today about really the heart of this issue of being in Christ and growing in Christ brings us to the focus on obedience to God. Now, another way to put it would be that unless Christ is in my life, unless I'm aware of what he's teaching me, then I can't really fulfill the call to be obedient to God. But in Christ, there is this resounding assurance that the human heart can become an obedient vessel. And this word obey is embedded in the Great Commission. When Jesus said, go into all the world, give the good news of the gospel to every creature in all nations, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. So obedience to God becomes then the, the fruit of this wondrous truth we looked at in Ephesians, that we walk with him. In Luke chapter 4, verse 30, we see right after the moment that we looked at last week where the synagogue townspeople sought unsuccessfully to push Jesus off of a cliff, and Jesus miraculously walks through the crowd, we see that in verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he taught people. On the Sabbath, Jesus taught people in Capernaum, and they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Now, first of all, notice that what happens in the synagogue of Nazareth was the declaration, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the healing of the brokenhearted, the recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are bruised. And then we, we concluded that last week by looking at the Jubilee year. He said, now, because I'm here, again, it's all about Jesus. Sounds so simple to say that, but it is all about his person. And the need of the body of Christ today, more than any other need that I can pinpoint, is that we might come back afresh to the full truth of all the Gospels and recognize that indeed, yes, Jesus is among us. He said at the conclusion of the Great Commission, wherever you go carrying out this commission, I will be with you always, even to the end of the ages. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 31, he leaves that moment of perilous danger. He descends to a, a, a thriving cultural center, 600 feet below the sea level there, Capernaum, and he begins to teach the people. And in his teaching, it becomes crystal clear by his presence that the Word of God is here in person, that this is one who speaks with an authority no human could ever claim. And yet, we have to put right alongside that the wonderful fact that whenever you and I open our mouth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're instruments, fallible though we are, but we're instruments of, of this mighty, wonderful force of the good news of Christ 
because the good news is all about a person. It's not about some routine we're learning. It's not about some skill we're developing. It's about knowing him and walking with him and following him. And it is in light of this that, that we can now step back a bit and think about how powerful this truth of obedience becomes. And then I want to look at some examples in Capernaum of how Jesus demonstrated an ironic but powerful truth about obedience. And that is very simply that in his word, he commanded, in his word, he, he commanded demons to flee from demon-possessed individuals, and after shrieking and crying out, who are you? Why have you come? We know who you are, excuse me. Why have you come? To have you come to destroy us before the time? And Jesus' word of authority is demonstrated by the conquest over evil. His word breaks in to bring the disciples to a place of willingness and obedience. His word is authoritative to cure the sick and to calm the storm. Now, it is that authoritative word under which you and I find our refuge. It is under that authoritative word that you and I can echo what we read in Ephesians, that we can be taught by him. We can learn him, not just learn about him, but learn him. That is, God's word is saying discipleship is a, is a calling for our hearts, lives, minds, and will to be shaped by the living Savior. And the beauty of this fact is that all of us not only can come under that word of authority, but yes, we can develop a heart of obedience to God that flows out of gratitude for what he has done. As I scan the various uses of the word obey uh, throughout the New Testament, I was very struck by this, that when the word obey is used in various places, too many to talk about today, but that, this, that it is connected directly to a work of grace by which the Holy Spirit is actively and dynamically causing us to grow. So I call it dynamic obedience. And two examples pop to mind that, that kind of uh, snapshot this. One is Isaiah 1, 18 and 19. Now, this reference is obviously looking forward 700 years to the New Testament era, but it captures the essence of this God-given, grace-empowered capacity to wholeheartedly obey God. Sometimes people think of responding to God's commands in an onerous way, but the beauty of the Bible is that it shows the most fulfilling, vibrant, life-giving way to live is in the commands of God, but they can't be fulfilled in human power. There has to be this dynamic working of the grace of God inside. And so in Isaiah, we have this wonderful command and warning. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. 
Now, though it was applied to the Israeli situation clearly in the whole context of Isaiah, this is really forecasting the good, the best of the land of life. I think it's really helpful to make this comparison that the Israelites were called in their covenant to a land to be possessed. And it required their responsiveness to God. It required their participation. It was given by God's covenant, but it required wholehearted engagement. The dark times in Israel's history show when their hearts were not engaged in the pursuit, and the bright times in Israel's experience was when there was wholehearted, passionate, joyous celebrating of the purposes of God. But nevertheless, their goal was a land to be possessed. In the New Testament, in Christ Jesus our Lord, you and I are also called to possess the land, but in our case, it is a life to be possessed. Colossians 3 puts it this way, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we will appear with him in glory. Every act of obedience outlined in that epistle flows out of the fact that in Christ, we've already been raised to a new quality of life. We are learning Christ. We are walking with him. So the Old Testament prophecy, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, we can apply directly to the Christ life. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the best of life. But, he says, the warning then follows. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a very stern warning that comes right alongside that, that bright and bold promise. Well, one reason we know that obedience was kind of um, integrally woven into the fabric of the gospel, uh, a, a spirit-empowered obedience that shapes the heart, is that when a, a summary verse in Acts 6 that describes the rapid ex, ex, expanding and multiplying of the new believers in Jerusalem as, uh, as the, 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 the celebration of the church, of God's gift of resurrection life in Christ, and the truths that were expanding their horizons and their understanding of the ways of God, as it spread, Acts 6-7 gives this summary verse, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. It's really striking that describing those of a steeped in that Levitical um, religious experience of the Old Testament, that when they came to know Christ, the living Savior, not only were they forgiven of their sins, but they're described as being made obedient to the faith. So there's a shaping of obedience in the heart that is a characteristic of everything the gospel says about how we receive Christ, how we respond to Christ, how we grow in Christ, how we share Christ. It's all wrapped around this, this um, wondrous fact that the redeemed heart can be shaped to become happily obedient, not grudgingly obedient, but joyously 
obedient to the Lord. Jesus accented it in a little different way, even in the very use of the word we started with today where it says you've learned Christ. That word we saw is the word mathetuo in the Greek, you have learned Christ. You've been taught by Christ, as we saw there. And the, the text is using the word mathetuo, which is the exact verb Jesus uses for making disciples. Our, ironically, our English word math comes from that Greek root, math, in mathematics. And the Greek uh, essence of the root was through thoughtful, uh, thoughtful endeavor, thought that is accompanied by endeavor, and of course it is used to refer to learning and the verb form of discipling, making disciples. Read aloud with me what the Lord said about it in John 8, 31. Would you read that aloud with me? Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. The accent is on a, an ongoing, growing reality. Yes, the heart can be shaped. Matetuo. There can be a vital work, an energizing work, and of course, it engages our very best energies. Now, we see this all through the Gospels, that as Jesus called people, as Jesus called people to follow him, as we saw first those, uh, the, the call in, in uh, Luke 5 of uh, Peter and James and John on the boat occurs after they had already made one trip to Jerusalem at the first Passover in John chapter 2, and these men had seen the water turned into wine, they had accompanied the Lord Jesus. They had been drawn to Christ through the witness of, of a friend. And all of that began with following John the Baptist and then Andrew pointing the way for Simon Peter to meet Jesus and then Jesus seeing Nathanael under the fig tree. And all of that happens before this scene on the Sea of Galilee. Now, on the Sea of Galilee, they know who he is. They are aware that they've been learning Christ. And on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus calls these men to a a dimension of discipleship which follows on John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And so again, there are four ways that we might think of this uh, uh, demonstrating of the authority of our living Savior. He calls the disciples, he casts out demons, he cures the sick, he calms the storm. What do those four phenomenal things have in common, the authority of his word is, that, is what changes everything. It is coming under the authority of his word. Think of the, the casting out of the demon, of the demon-possessed person in the synagogue. In the synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice. Now, this comes right on the heels of that statement in Luke 4 that they were astonished at his teaching, for he spoke with authority. And if there is one 
place we would all yearn more for the authority of Almighty God to be seen. It is in the conquest over evil that is so, so evident to us every day in our culture. So these phenomenal encounters show us that it's the word of Christ. He's with you in person. He's with us here in this church in person. His risen promise is, I will be with you. How many of you praise God for that today? So when we encounter evil, when we encounter the manifestation of Satan's designs for human beings, we, our first place of refuge should not be moaning and groaning about how terrible everything is. It should be running to Christ and saying, Lord, we see you are Lord. You are Lord over these circumstances. I thank you for your living word. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that he upholds all things by the power of his word. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So what could be greater? What could be a greater need for Liberty Church? What could be a greater need for every worshiper here today, every person joining us in a live stream that joins us in heart, what could be more vital for us than to love his word, hear his word, dwell in his word, wait on God and with an open copy of the scriptures saying, thank you, Lord, that you are the living word and your word is authoritative. And of course, (laughs) the demons crying out, uh, as I mistakenly said a a moment ago, they they were crying out, what business do we have with each other or with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Uh, You see, this is another indication of this powerful authority of the living Christ. It's striking that he demonstrates it in the synagogue here in letting the disciples begin to get a window into the power of his resurrection that is yet to come. After the resurrection, about uh, 23, 24 years later, when Paul is writing the epistle to the Colossians, Paul summarizes this conquest in these awesome words in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities in the invisible realm and made an open show of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Christ, the living one, gives us his word. And it is the word of the conquering Savior. It is the word of our victorious King. How dare we, any of us, take lightly the word that he's entrusted to us. It is his gift to shape and form and place within us that assurance, oh, that wonderful assurance of his authority in our lives. Now, it's striking that in this whole chapter in Luke chapter 4, we just read a little piece of it, but in this whole chapter, what happens from there to the end of the chapter is that the calling of those disciples to become fishers of men, fishers of men, the uh, casting out of, of, of uh, the demon-possessed, sending Satan to where he belongs. The curing is put alongside the healing of the sick, but in this case, 
in a rel relatively non, uh, not, not one of the more severe cases. Simon, Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. All of us that have had fevers know that's uncomfortable and difficult, but usually not fatal. But here Jesus steps alongside as Simon Peter and the disciples are now gathering at what, his, what historically has, has been found almost certainly to have been Peter's house in Capernaum, a site of excavation. I just got a snapshot there of it because that is a, uh, that site of excavation of Simon Peter's house is believed to be the place that most of this wondrous coming and going took place on this very long day in the ministry of Jesus. He's been on the, uh, at the Sea of Galilee early at sunrise. He's been in a synagogue where demons cried out and he cast out spirits. He's walked with the disciples on the dusty roads of Galilee. They've come to Simon Peter's home and Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who would gener genuinely, generally serve, is sick with a fever. And they come to Jesus, and Jesus comes alongside her and heals Peter's mother-in-law instantly of the fever. The casting out of demons, the calling of the disciples, the curing of the sick, the calming of a storm in Luke 8, when they're on the Sea of Galilee, as an, after an exhausting day of nonstop pouring out his soul, humanly speaking, to uh, thousands and thousands of people. He is now, Jesus has now fallen asleep in the stern of the boat as they're sailing on the beautiful Sea of Galilee. And is often the case because of the, uh, the geographical um, uh, terrain of that, of that sea with uh, almost kind of like a bowl-shaped um, effect there, the storms oftentimes come up, gale force winds, rather suddenly, much more suddenly than on many lakes that we're used to. And this furious storm arises, and the storm and the winds begin to toss the boat, and they are afraid that they're going to capsize and die. And uh, probably one of the most beloved stories in all of the, of the Gospels, where we hear the disciples at the edge of their fright crying out, Lord, don't you care that we're about to perish? The, the living one, the savior, the conquering one, who's cast out demons, fed the multitudes, opened the eyes of the blind, and they're crying out in their shock and fright, don't you care that we're about to perish? How many of us have been in a moment where everything we knew about Jesus just vanishes in that moment, and our first instinct is, Lord, don't you care what I'm going through? And of course, we know what happened, that Jesus is awakened, Stands up, he looks at the storm, and in that moment, a, that furious storm is raging such that the water is splashing over the sides of the boat. The, they're doing everything they can to try to control the movement of the boat. And Jesus opens his mouth and says, Peace, be still. The winds and the waves subside. The gyrations of that sail of that fishing vessel uh, uh, certainly began to slow the rocking and the and the waving and the whoever was seasick was probably given a hope they would feel better and here they are they're being they're being calmed and their response the savior they've already seen in action in many many ways is who is this 
who is this who commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him? Here is another example of just why it is that where we are so tempted to get our focus on the things that we don't like in life, the things that are so difficult for us to understand, and the gospel brings us again and again reminders that the way we can become in sync for Jesus is through an obedience that flows out of gratitude. Some years ago, a a well-known speaker at high school and colleges holding seminars about um, developing endurance in life was a guy by the name of John Fopp. He was um, uh, an accomplished leader, an entrepreneur, had a very um, compelling message of motivation for young people, had grown up as one of eight boys who worked his way through college in uh, three and a half years and graduated cum laude. Did I say that right? I hope I did. Um, And he was a caring and energetic leader that inspired uh, tens of thousands of people with his seminars because as he made his way to the stage to talk about some of the lessons that he'd learned in life and motivation, everybody could see that he had no arms and that John was born without arms. Through his uh, discipline, determination, and passion for life, he had made his way through an extremely difficult childhood, teenage years, and into college. And he would tell the story about how, how was it with going through life with no arms that he would um, have handled um, all of those things and made so many strides in his life. And he would trace it back to a point when he was 10 years old and his mother finally put a stop to all the help that his brothers had been giving him. Until 10, they helped him with everything, but she determined at 10 he was to stop getting help and he was to learn to do everything on his own. After a long arguing and being upset and crying and whining and complaining about how difficult it was to adjust to the new rules of the house, his mother had put before him an article in the newspaper or magazine about a little girl who was born without arms or legs. And John traced back to that article and that discovery something that triggered a very revolutionary kind of gratitude in him in spite of his disability, that he said, I suddenly began to realize that I was making a mistake by focusing on what I had lost when I should have been more thankful for what I still had. And from that gratitude flowed this this dynamic obedience that I'm talking about today, this this, uh, creative, uh, overcoming, dynamic, internal drive that says, as Philippians 2.13 says, it is God working in me. So I will, I will obey out of faith in God. I will, I will be aware of what he's done for me. I'm aware of my limitations for sure, but gratitude can win out over griping. 
Gratitude can ascend above the, the littered landscape of broken dreams and dashed hopes. And gratitude is a gift from God as well because it anchors us in the capacities of Almighty God. And I, I find myself thinking that after looking at the authority of Jesus to call the disciples to cast out demons, to cure the sick, to calm the storm, that there's a, a slight, subtle, ironic turn in the same day in Capernaum that happens with a leper. And you can find the text in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And I think it's worth turning to that in your Bible. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. Because in Mark 1, 40, we see another example of his authoritative word. But here we see a subtle example of how vitally urgent it is that real practical obedience becomes a part of our lives. And, and what's really notable about this is that the lack of obedience does not automatically steal from us the blessings of God. He said, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the best of the land. But there are times when even when we've not done what we should do, we all know this, that God's blessings prevail. We, we sang the song a couple of weeks ago, I think it was when, uh, with Bethany, um, his uh, goodness is chasing after me, is chasing after me. How many of you know God's, God's so good that it's hard to stop the goodness, isn't it? But the point of this promise of obedience or the command is make the best of every situation. And, and I think that this leper is an example of a subtle lesson in obedience that helps us realize why it matters in the small things. Could you shout out with me before we read Luke Mark 140? Shout out with me, obedience in small things. Let's say it, obedience in small things. A man, Mark 140, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. He was indignant at the, at the condition like he was the woman with the, with the back uh, that was out of joint. He was indignant at what, at, at what uh, sickness had done to humanity. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. I'm in Mark 142 now. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. Now, I, I love it. I have to stop here. I love this. Here's a guy, you see, here's a guy, a leprosy, as we know, even in more modern times, was a very serious condition, and People had to be quarantined for it, and there's all kinds of problems that can develop if it's not treated correctly. And, and in India, uh, Dr. Brand found that people would come in up with stumps instead of fingers because of the damage of leprosy. It was a very damaging disease. And in the days of Jesus, it was, it was, like, a, it was like a permanent um, ost uh, being ostracized from a community permanently because of the fear of its contagion. And there were many, many uh, stigmas that went with the lepers. And here's a guy who meets Jesus and says, Lord, if, if you're willing, <laughs> you, you can make me clean. And Jesus gives us that resounding word that shows the magnificent, the, the, the grace of God in its manifestation in countless ways. I am willing. The Creator has designed us to have positive expectations toward Him. I'm willing. Be clean. Now, immediately, verse 43 ends by saying, 
He gave him a strong warning. Now, let me ask you a question. If you just had an absolute notable miracle from the hand of Jesus, and he was about to warn you of something, don't you think you'd like to listen to that warning? Wouldn't there be something kind of logical about that? And he warns him because of the, the requirement of the Jewish culture at that time. It was two reasons Jesus did it. One was to, just to be in compliance with, their, with the uh, regulations. However, I believe, I believe it's very clear that Jesus was also sending people like him to Jerusalem. See, they had to make a trip all the way to Jerusalem to show themselves to the priests. Jesus had already been to Jerusalem, had already encountered the opposition of the scribes and Pharisees, and what a wonderful thing it would be to see people traipsing into Jerusalem, dancing and leaping and praising God, and they're saying, where are you from? And he says, I was a leper until I met this Jesus of Nazareth. So there was a dual purpose for this warning and this instruction of Jesus to go on down to Jerusalem. Now let's read verse 44 of Luke of Mark 1. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Wow, that's opposite what we expect. We think, go testify. In this case, specific instructions matter from God. Don't tell anyone now. Go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing. What does he say? Those last um, words of that verse, as a testimony to them. So Jesus, think of this leper now. Not only has he gotten a, a mighty miracle, not only is he immediately cleansed. Think of how having all that stuff off your skin instantaneously, how wonderful that would be. And Jesus tells him, not only that he needs to do it to, to fulfill their requirements, but He's actually already dispatching this guy on a mission. He's been cleansed of leprosy for five minutes, and he's already been called a missionary. <laughs> Go tell them. Go give them this testimony. And now look at verse 45 of Mark 1. Instead, he went out <laughs> and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Now, we can, we can understand why he's excited, he's but this is such a notable example to me that if Christ's authority drives out demons, cures the sick, calms the storms, calls disciples, then how much more, if the winds and waves obey him, how much more should I obey him? If the winds and the waves obey Christ, how much more should I, even if it seems like a small thing, obey him? Could you say again with me, obey in the small things? Obey in the small things. So as a result, Mark 1.45, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, it's just like our God, isn't it? Now, Jesus, humanly speaking, ran into a barrier there. We know in his humanity that he accepted certain limitations because he was God in the flesh, but he laid aside the privileges of deity. So here he is, and it could honestly be said that in this situation, Jesus' initial plans were hindered. He was going to keep preaching there, but he had to go out into desert places because the crowds we're just overwhelming them. So Jesus goes into desert places. And I think in a way we could parallel to this leper's cleansing 
what it means to come to Christ and have our sins forgiven. Because it said there, as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And it, it takes us back to that same Isaiah passage about, about uh, being willing and obedient. Because in that same verse, it said, that same chapter, it said, Though your sins are like scarlet. Read it aloud with me. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. It can be said for you and me, the leprosy, the dread leprosy of sin that so tainted our innermost being is the ultimate in leprosy. And the word of the Lord, the word of our risen Savior is, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The, the, the Greek expression there uses a word meaning a species. It's as if God has created something never existed before. That is, each individual is a unique, redeemed trophy of God's grace. And you can say, when Christ came into my heart, something far greater than a leprous skin was cleansed. It was a sin-poisoned soul. Jesus, the living God, is dwelling in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and that is why you can do the obey thing. Again, that's the, that's the context in which the writers of the epistles use the word obey. It's something, it's a dynamic obedience, and Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here he's, he's the, the, the great apostle of grace, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul is not talking about works here. He's talking about let the, let the results of being saved become more dynamic in your life. He's saying, it's all by God's grace, but God involves each of us in the process, just like he gave that leper, that cleansed leper, a simple instruction that he was well able to obey. And the, the, the kicker here is that God is working in us. Read that last part with me aloud. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Read it aloud, but now and say, working in me. For it is God, say it this way, for it is God who works in me, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So my question as we go today is what next steps would you want to take this week? What next steps are, are right before you as you respond to God's goodness in your life in energized obedience? What does it mean to you? The next step for one person here sitting, sitting over here may be different than somebody sitting over here. God has individual challenges that he puts before us. And, and to get quiet before God, to get still before the Lord, and to, with an open Bible say, Lord, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that obedience is a real, is a lively, dynamic, life-changing reality I can embrace. Show me, Lord, what is immediately before me that is a positive step in obedience 
that I need to take. Because if you're willing and obedient, woo, you'll eat the best of the land. Oh, Father, we thank you today that you call us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we can show forth your praises. Give us, Lord, a passion to see that the, that the voice that still stilled the storm, the voice that dry, drove unclean spirits out of a demon-possessed man, the voice that calmed a fever for Peter's mother-in-law, the voice that said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Your voice is authoritative to my soul. Give us grace to joyously embrace our next steps in dynamic obedience. Amen.